Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 231st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we're going to be joined by Karen Wickiam, who is the host of the Stat podcast. You've probably heard me mention that on here in the past. She is not only a former emergency nurse, but she's also a paranormal investigator. She's going to join us to talk about a couple of haunted locations in Whitby, Ontario. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Nikki. Hello, Nikki. Danielle. Hi, Danielle. AJ. Hey, AJ. Robert. Hello, Robert. Heather. Hello, Heather. Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Nolene. Hello, Nolene. And Zach. Hey, Zach. And now, this moment, Naughty. Hypha tumescina is a microscopic parasitic bacteria that has an unusual effect on human bodies after death. The parasite dehydrates the bodies before decomposition can even begin. The result is a perfectly mummified body. A place where this phenomenon has been observed is in Venzone, Italy. Bodies have been buried in the tombs beneath the cathedral of Venzone for hundreds of years. It was in these tombs that townsfolk started noticing that the bodies of their loved ones were not decomposing. The bodies would be perfectly preserved and almost recognizable. The family members started a weird tradition of taking their deceased loved ones out of the tomb on occasion to talk to them and have them in attendance at various events. It would be scientists studying this phenomenon that would discover that there was no miracle taking place here to keep the bodies intact, but rather that Haifa Tumbasina was the culprit. We're not sure which is weirder, that a little bacteria was able to make mummies, or that townspeople took their mummified relatives out of their tombs to socialize, but both certainly are odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. In the month of November, on the 9th in 1888, Jack the Ripper would claim his final victim, Mary Jane Kelly. 
Jack the Ripper, as he called himself, killed and mutilated at least five prostitutes in the Whitechapel area of London from late August 1888 to November 1888. Kelly had claimed to be born in Ireland and that her parents had moved to Wales when she was young. It was in the early 1880s that she ended up in Cardiff, and it is believed she started prostitution at this time. She was poor and a widow, and there were not many other ways to make money. She moved to London in 1884. She was described as a beautiful and buxom girl, and she loved to sing Irish songs when she was drunk. And it was when she was drinking that she became an abusive woman, who many referred to as Dark Mary. Kelly's death was the most gruesome of all the Ripper killings, because the Ripper was able to take his time with her body, since she had invited him back to her room. Dr. Thomas Bond wrote in his notes of the scene, quote, The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in a line with the neck was marked by blood, which had struck it in several places. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. End quote. Jack the Ripper was never arrested, and his identity remains a mystery today. Whidbey, Ontario is in southeastern Ontario and is what we would consider a suburb of Toronto. The name is Danish and means White Village. The original surveyor of the area chose the town's names here from towns in northeastern England, so Whitby is named for a seaport in Yorkshire. Camp 30 was an urban explorer's playground with several abandoned, crumbling buildings just waiting to be explored. This was a former school for delinquent boys and World War II prisoner of war camp that housed Nazis. While things were good for the prisoners, life at the school for the boys was horrible, and several died. This has left behind some spiritual residue. The Whidbey Psychiatric Hospital was run like many of the asylums in America. Abuses and deaths here seem to have led to hauntings. The Centennial Building is a former courthouse that now seems to be a haunted theater. The Trafalgar Castle School is built to look like a castle, and just like so many castles, it seems to be home to some spirits as well. Join us and Karen Wickiam, host of the STAT podcast, as we look at several locations in Whidbey, Ontario, that have a reputation for being haunted. We are joined by Karen Wickiam. She is a former ER nurse, and she is also the host of the STAT podcast, which I've been a fan of probably since it started, because I didn't have to listen to too much of a backlog. So I got you right when you started, and it was right up my alley. I went, wait a minute, this is about weird medical type stuff. And the thing that I love about your podcast, Karen, is that you put a lot of heart into it. Because when you look at it from the outside and you go, oh, she's going to be talking about lobotomies. Sometimes you think people are going to maybe enjoy it a little bit as they're telling it and maybe trying to creep it up or whatever and not get into the heart of the actual people that are being lobotomized. And that's what's great about your podcast is that you get into the lives of the people who are affected this way. So we want to welcome you to History Ghost Bump. We're excited to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for such a lovely introduction. 
I'm really glad you're enjoying the show. And what you just said, it, it sums up a lot perfectly because I don't think in that situation that I need to enhance it at all. I think the people's stories and the subject matter itself is horror in its own. So just telling the story is you can't even make that stuff up. What made you decide to start a podcast number one and then to start one with your particular topic? I've always wanted to do a podcast or be in radio. When I first was going out into the world, I actually had applied to Ryerson here in Toronto, which is our, our big place for a lot of artistic for TV, film, and, and radio. So, And then there was my whole family is pretty much med- medical back. So I thought, well, back in the 80s, 90s, I can make some money or I can do something that maybe not make me some money maybe down the road. So, yeah, I chose to be a nurse. And then once I retired, I thought, now I can pursue this as uh, doing podcasts. As far as why did I stop with this, this particular subject, it's because it's something that sort of haunted me ever since I was in nursing school, taking the psychiatric part of my education. And Howard Dully, the, the man that was lobotomized at 12, it just pulled at me. And I don't think anybody really knows the true story or I'm not going to say anybody. Few people know what really happened. It's become sort of a, not so much a joke, but something that you can easily joke about, which, hey, you know what? I don't have a problem with that. We we joke about often things that make us uncomfortable, but I thought it was important to, to dig into it and maybe have something people can learn about. Well, I think you're doing a fabulous job with it. So what got you interested in the paranormal? Wow. I guess here I can talk about this stuff, right? Because a lot of people be like, oh, the, that nurse that believes in the paranormal, you know, that she's maybe she's a little weird. Karen, actually, you can fly your freak flag proudly here. I am so happy that I can do that because it's it's something where if you, when you are in the medical field, which is so scientific, and if you have a passion for this other people, sometimes there's a, there's a sort of a loss of credibility that some people may have for you. Not everybody, but you know what I mean? Science versus paranormal sometimes clash though it's all about science I think mm-hmm. ever since I was a young girl I heard I had experiences let's just let's just put it that way living in different homes I don't know I, I could just feel things sense things and hear things and that's just something I always had then moving forward going into nursing and working in different hospitals working with different patients I've had some pretty amazing experiences within my my field. So taking that forward, I decided, you know what, I want to pursue this more. I want to I want to find out more. I want to dig deeper. And I love history. So I could find out what, what is going on with that area, that property, delve into that and uh, investigate and just kill two birds with, with one stone sort of thing. Now, you told me that you've done some paranormal investigating. Is this with an actual team or just on your own? No, I, w- I started off on my own. And then I was with a team for a while, and then I preferred to do it on my own. So I went back to doing uh, it on my, by myself. You are brave. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I'd want to go into a haunted place by myself. No, um, not at all. I, sometimes with one other person I'll go, but I just find that I'm, I don't want to say I'm a control freak, but I like to, yeah, I like to have a lot of control over how I'm, I'm doing something. And sometimes... Too many people going to one spot can really contaminate an area, and I I want it to be as pure as possible. What kind of evidence did you collect? Were you getting EVPs, pictures? Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a full-bodied apparition? No, that that is like the the jackpot, is to see a (laughs) full-bodied apparition. I I felt that I have seen that, but I haven't captured it. I don't have it as evidence. 
I, all I can do is speak of what I've experienced. But uh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't have the holy grail of that on uh, <laughs> documented. We're the same way. And I don't know how I would react if it ever happened. Cause I think, Oh, that'd be really cool. But then I'm also like, would I just pee my pants? <laughs> I, I think you'd probably find it cool. And well, even if you pee your pants at the same time, that's all right. <laughs> just wear diapers when you go on. You got everything covered. Hey, we always talk about my need for depends <laughs> on this show. So <laughs> I, I think you'd be surprised that by what your reaction would be. What do you think a spirit is? What are your theories on that? That's, that's a tough question because I think of, of ghosts, I think of spirits, I think of souls. I th- you know, it, it conjures up a lot of, of feelings, spirit. When I, when I think of a spirit, I think of, a, of, an, of the essence of a, of a person, an essence of a, of a being. But then I think about our own spirit. So is that something that's the essence of ours that hasn't quite passed on? Or is it something that comes and goes to sort of pop in and say, hi, mm-hmm. we're here? Because then there's the whole idea of, of a ghost, um, a, a, a soul, a person that hasn't passed over. So that's, I, I don't know, it's a tough question to answer. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I think some things are residual. It's just, you know, the past repeating itself, so to speak, through memory, through wood and brick walls environment. And then I think that there's actual, resi- like, real intelligent energy from people that that hadn't been ready to pass, didn't know they had passed, have un- unresolved business, or maybe some people that have that ability to come and go and just check in on things. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> well, I just know the further into this that we've gotten, and especially because we look at so many different haunted locations, and we've talked to so many different people that have had all kinds of experiences, and then the more we've done it, the more experiences we've had. It just gives me more questions and less answers. Yeah. At work and working with people who have passed, I've actually have experienced some incredible things. Two things as being a nurse, uh, especially working in the Emerge, that it is an honor to be at someone's birth and believe it or not, at someone's passing. Because you're seeing the end, you're witnessing the end of a life, wherever, whatever happens after. And then, of course, a birth, the beginning of a life. But I have felt changes in a room after someone has passed. I have seen someone that's been very close open their eyes and stare off with the most glorious, beautiful look on their face. And the room will become almost like, you know when you see the heat wave Mm -hmm. uh, when you're driving down a highway? Yeah. And there's like, yeah, the room will have that um, sort of feel to it. And it will go cool. And then within moments, they would pass. And I, I really feel that I've experienced and shared something in that moment. You know, some people be like, oh, well, that's all in your head or whatever. But for me, that I believed I saw in, in something absolutely amazing. Maybe it was something, maybe it wasn't. And it was that kind of experience. Now, that didn't happen often, but it was that type of experience that made me really want to dig deeper in, into this. And hospitals are a hotbed for paranormal experiences. There's definitely a few places that I've worked where there are hallways, there are going to the morgue. <laughs> it's usually <laughs> in an underground basement where you go. It's got to be furthest away from as possible. And a lot of staff, we don't want to talk about it, but we've experienced things. So I don't know if I've gone a little bit off track here, but just to let you know that, you know, definitely I've experienced and seen things in the hospital and you can't freak out, right? Because you're at work. <laughs> True. You'd be surprised that... When you do come across something, it's maybe not as scary as you thought or would think. Well, and I got to think with some of the stuff that you've seen come into the ER, a ghost is like, oh, that's no big deal. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. Sometimes, but that in itself leads to like traumatic instant death or quick deaths leads to unsettled spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Unsettled, unsettled soul. Sure. So when it's quiet, if that's a, a word you never say in a hospital, but there are moments of quiet. Sometimes you'll hear noises or feel cool breezes or doors will open and close. And can you really be surprised by that considering the nature of what goes on there? Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think everybody at this point has heard the story of Steve Jobs when he was passing that, you know, he opened his eyes and just was looking off into the distance like you described and saying, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And we all wonder, what was he seeing? Yeah, exactly. And the beautific look on the person's face can tell me that whatever they did see was spectacular. Mm -hmm. It it leaves your heart full of hope. I don't know. It, It was just an incredible experience. Well, I know that when my cousin passed away, she had, right before she passed, she had kind of gone through a similar thing, but then she had said, it's okay, mama's here. And her mom had passed away a couple months prior to her. And I know that when my mom was kind of relaying this with the doctor, the doctor said that wasn't a hallucination. He said, we see it all the time. So kind of the same thing that you're alluding to when you work in the medical field, it's not just the same of like somebody having a hallucination because of the painkillers or whatever, that it's a wholly different thing. And that's what her doctor had said. And then you're you're kind of saying the exact same thing. Yes. It's something that we kind of, I think, all know but don't talk about it for some reason. And I think it's that stigma of, it's a, it's an uncomfortable subject. Let's just put it that way. People don't like to talk about that. And even among ourselves, we have to have a, a certain veneer in order to get through a day sometimes. But when you are able to experience a wonderful, amazing thing like that, you know what, at the very least, I was witness to someone who may have been in horrific pain die with dignity and comfort, even if it's in those fleeting moments. They went happy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if at the very least, that that was wonderful. But I, I, I believe to the bottom of my heart that it was way more than that. A couple of the locations that we're talking about today are located in Whitby, Ontario. Can you tell us a little bit about Whitby? We've never been there. So we're not sure. Is it a big city or what's it like? I'm just going to give a sort of a, a quick geography, if that's okay. I promise you won't be painful. Um, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> so we've got Toronto, the big metropolis of Toronto. And sort of anything within a 50 kilometer or so radius around Toronto is called the Greater Toronto Area. So Whitby falls within this Greater Toronto Area. And it's about four towns that really abut against each other. Pickering, Ajax, Whitby, Oshawa. That's your Greater Toronto Area. And they all literally sit on top of each other. So within that area, it's called Durham Region. And Durham Region is the history, military history, uh, just historical value is, is huge. So a lot goes on in that area. In 1922, Mr. John H. H. Jury owned a farm known as Darch Farm that spanned 300 acres. He donated the land to the government so that the school for delinquent boys could be built. Construction was completed in 1927, and it was run as a school until the outbreak of World War II. It was at this time that the British government needed a place far away to house Nazi prisoners. The government ordered the school to shut down in 1941 and refurbished to become a suitable prison. Most boys were sent back home, but a few were relocated to the Rathskamore. The transformation took seven months and included the installation of wire fencing, guard towers, barracks, and gates. The first POWs arrived in October of 1941. One of these prisoners was General Johann von Ravenstein. 
second in command to Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. He was captured in the desert of North Africa and had on him at the time several maps with orders from Adolf Hitler himself. Another prisoner was General Arthur Schmidt, who was captured in Africa as well. A third Nazi general here was General George Fremel, who was captured during the Blitzkrieg. Otto Kretschmer was a famous Corvettenkapitän who was captured and brought to Camp 30 in 1941. He had sunk more tonnage than any other U-boat commander. He was awarded the Knight's Cross with oak leaves and swords for his efforts. So there's a couple of camps there. There's Camp 30 and Camp X. And yeah. I... I guess, you know, we never think about the fact that Canada has really been involved in a lot of our world wars. It's not like you guys were just sitting on the back burner. You were in it long before America ever jumped into these. So tell us a little bit about, let's start with uh, Camp 30. What was its purpose? Camp 30 was a prisoner of war camp for German, Nazi German soldiers. So a lot of people would say, why Canada? Why Bowmanville? Bowmanville is the little city right next to Whitby. It's because of its location close to Toronto. And also the whole theory was of, that England was invaded and they had prisoners of war in England and then they were released that they would have a whole bunch of soldiers right in the mix ready to fight. If they were in Canada, they couldn't. So that's why they removed, they moved the prisoner of war to that area in, in uh, Canada. That camp was within a half an hour drive of Camp X, which was our... Uh, secret service type equivalent, military equivalent at the time. And then Toronto was next to that. So it was sort of your your best area to have it. How long were they open for? I think it was 1941 to 1945, at least, at least until for three years at the very least. It was a private school for delinquent boys before. And they were told that they needed to shut down and make it into a prisoner of work uh, camp within a few months. So it was converted from a detention school into a uh, military site. Interesting. So we've started off with a place for delinquent boys, which always has a weird contribution to hauntings. And then we've turned it into a prisoner of war camp. So we've got a lot of different kinds of energy going on here. Do you know how they were treated at the prisoner of war camp? Was it a good place to stay or was it bad? It was a great place to be. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. No, see, this is where it, I find it absolutely fascinating and terrible at the same time. The boys that were at this delinquent camp were horribly abused. There were five deaths. Mm. The prisoners from another country in a war were treated like kings. Wow. And that is where that gets my blood going. Mm -hmm. Because not that I, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that anybody should have been mistreated. But come on, <laughs> to have our hurting who knows why those boys were acting out the way they were? Mm -hmm. God only knows. And for them to be so abused and beaten and murdered, you're following me here, right? Yeah. And yeah. then you treat the Nazis like they're kings. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit oh. of a dichotomy there. Do you want to hear, can I Can I tell you just a couple of, of stories of how of what it was like there? Yeah, please do. Okay. First of all, they did head counts between 9 and 5 p.m. So basically, you can just walk around, do whatever you want. We'll check in on you at 9 o'clock and 5 o'clock. So, you know, there really wasn't a lot of major security. No. Being that it was a school prior, the amenities, they had an indoor pool, athletic complex, a soccer field, football field, hockey, tennis court, and a mini zoo. They also had an orchestra and a theater group. The uh, prisoners got paid their full pay while they were there, had the money sent to them, and they could shop at a canteen that was like the 1940s version of Walmart. They also had brand new clothes sent from Germany 
for them to have fresh, clean uniforms. There was a doctor and dentist on site, so they lived very well. Their meals were amazing. In the summers, they worked on a farm, so they always had fresh meat, fresh vegetables, cheeses, breads. Nowhere in the in Europe, in the, in huge part of the world, were getting any kind of food like that at the time. And they had access to all this. So just think about how that sort of life. They didn't want to go. They didn't. They liked being there. You know, we don't have to fight, and we can be here and and live so wonderfully. It was warm. Um, so this is sort of like what the conditions were, if you want to call them that. Their biggest complaint was that. The bathrooms were small because the detention center was made for children. So that was their, their big complaint. There is a, a German word, and I'm probably going to butcher it when I say it. It's called Ehrenwort, and it's the German word for word of honor. Why that is important is because if the German soldier gave their word that they wouldn't escape, they were allowed to go swimming down at the lake. They were allowed to go out and go cross-country skiing, go get stuff in town, and then come back. So they could actually leave the camp and go back into it. So yeah, th these were the horrible conditions they lived in. Of course, the way they were being treated, they would be idiots to leave because if they yeah. get caught, they probably don't get to go back there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's the Canadian way, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Give us our word, you can go out. And no, yeah, so it was very, uh, you know, it was, was not a bad place for them to, to be. They quite liked being there. There was actually... One documented battle, apparently, it was the only battle of World War II that took place, and it was in Bowmanville, where this camp is, and it was called the Battle of Bowmanville. And what happened was that in Germany at the time, Canadian soldiers were being shackled to the walls at their prisoner of war camp. The Canadians said, if you don't unshackle our guys, we're going to shackle your guys. Well, the soldiers got really upset about that, and there was a war in the camp where they were throwing jars of jam at each other, and someone got hit in the head and injured, and so the, the battle ended. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So that's, the battle of, that's the Battle of Bowmanville, the, the one and only war, you know, battle in um, World War II uh, offside of uh, <laughs> Europe. Sorry for my strange sense of humor, but I just think that, oh my God, that's the worst of it. Yeah. So what were the injuries? Uh, that guy got pegged in the head. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was quite the battle. Jam! It looked worse than it was. <laughs> I believe, and it is believed that most of the hauntings and activity take place from the abuse from the boys, as opposed to what took place. Because no one died at the camp that was a soldier. There was there was nothing like that that took place. But there definitely was terrible things that happened when the when the boys were there. What happened to it after the war was over? Did it go back to being a school? Yeah, yeah. And then, do you know how long it was open for? In the 1980s, and then it was shut down and abandoned. And they so just, it's uh, just been sitting there neglected. Uh, up, up until a couple of years ago, uh, it's been torn down now. It's totally leveled. That's why I was lucky to get in there and get the pictures I did and do the investigation I did because it was in the process of being torn down. They were hoping to keep the buildings, maintain, you know, make it into a heritage site. That never happened. And you know what? I don't know. I, I, my thoughts on that is why? Why would you do that? So much terrible stuff happened there. I don't know. Put, put a park in there. <laughs> You know, let's not preserve buildings where such horrific things took place. Wow. So I was unaware that they had torn it down. So even though they felt it was a, a historic site, they just tore it down. Well, a lot of people were, were hoping they put in, you know, bids to have it made into like a Canadian heritage site. Mm -hmm. But it, it didn't happen. They were saying it just wasn't old enough and... They, they just couldn't justify it. And I, I'm kind of glad that they did, again, because when there's 
in some homes where there's been mass murders or that type of thing, they generally tear those homes down. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, this is a perfect, this is just my opinion, but I think tearing it down would probably be the best thing to do. So it's been leveled now, but uh, there's, there's a ton of history that you can find. Well, not a ton, but you can find some just uh, really cool history on the internet. And I've got some fantastic pictures. And we'll be sure to put those up in the show notes. When you were out there taking these pictures, did you feel weird out there at all? Did anything feel paranormal to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I went there, I think a total of five times. Had to be careful because the there would be police that would that would patrol into the property from there, not like every now and then. Sure. Um, one day I was coming out of a building and there was a, a cop that sort of came around and we sort of walked into each other. And I'm like, oh, no. And he's like, Karen. <laughs> oh, he knew you. Now, is this a good thing that he knew you? Yeah, yeah, we worked at the hospital, right? So okay. He's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, um, he's like, uh, just go home. I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, likely story. I knew him from the hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Karen, we know, we know about the cover-up stories. So first of all, there were tunnels that were dug under the buildings when the prisoner of war uh, guys were there, because, you know, even even if you're living in a great place, you got to at least make it look like you want to leave, right? So <laughs> they tried to dig out some tunnels and they were collapsed. So there were still some access to some of those those tunnels. Some There was a place where these these poor little boys were, were taken into the basement and punished. And there was two spe- uh, specific rooms where they had died. They had left them there for about a week in this room. And five um, out of like 11 or 12 kids passed. And in that whole area underneath is very active. I got some um, EVPs there. You know, there's a big controversy about orbs and things like that. But I think I know the difference when you're getting, you know, mists and black shadows and stuff. When When you can see something that's darker than dark, you know what I mean? Like it's dark in the room, but when it penetrates through that, you know, I, I can only think that that's a paranormal thing. And the whole goosebumps on the arms, the, the the nausea, the horrible waves of nausea, just it's this unsettled feeling and EVPs, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I definitely picked up on all of that there. When you say nausea, that's kind of disturbing because usually that means there's something negative there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 there was something negative there. These tunnels Karen has referenced were dug in an ingenious way. They were started in the summer of 1943, and work on them was done around the clock. The prisoners tunneled 15 feet beneath the building. The dirt was removed in bags that were placed on a trolley track and lifted from one person to the next until it made its way to the addict of Haas 4. A prisoner in the addict would then empty the bags, sprinkling the dirt over the rafters. The tunnel ran 300 feet and passed under Lambs Road and into a cornfield. Well, let's shift gears over here to Camp X. What do you know about that? That's like kind of cool for, for Canada, I think, that we had a uh, our own little secret service deal going on in, in Canada where we were trying to do, um, yeah, like I guess the equivalent to the CIA stuff. That's what kind of got the Camp 30 going. So our military was trying to get into doing, you know, secret agent stuff. I don't know like too much more than that, except for that it was there. And that's what kind of led to Camp 30 going there. Because that whole area, too, is pretty, a lot of our military, we have a lot of bases out in, in this part of Ontario. Trenton, Borden, I know these names don't mean a lot to you, but I can I could list off so many that are just sort of in within a 200-kilometer radius where it's, it's heavy with military before us. 
Well, I do know that they have a radio communication center and the transmitter they have there was known as Hydra. And I just love that because I'm into the Marvel and everything. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we, we have a lot more interesting things going on than people realize. <laughs> now, do you know if this location is this, this has been abandoned as well? Is it still standing or has it been torn down too? Uh, Camp X is still there, but it's pretty much decrepit buildings. Now, that's I thought that would be a kind of place, a cool place to have kept. But I guess after the war, some things just went into disrepair because of lack of funds and and things like that. So there wasn't really much of a need for that to con- to continue on. So those buildings were used and just sort of abandoned because they became older. So that sort of that sort of phased out a little bit. I've been to that spot, and it's just you know some abandoned buildings. It's not all that exciting. The the story is more exciting. Gotcha. The Whitby Psychiatric Hospital was built between 1913 and 1916. It was set up much the same way as most asylums at that time, as a self-sustaining community. A network of tunnels was built underneath the many buildings to facilitate movement. And then there's the Whitby Psychiatric Hospital. And I think you had mentioned that you've been out there as well. Yeah. No, that's, that's also been torn down as well. Um, I was lucky enough to, to get into those buildings before that. That building, they opened up in the early 1900s, shut down in 1995, and, and buildings started being torn down in the late 2000s, so mid to late 2000s. But a lot of, lot of stuff uh, went on. Any asylums, I, I don't like the word asylum, but I use it because that's what they were called. Like any other asylum, a lot of terrible things went on uh, in those buildings, and there was a lot of activity in the area. In fact, it was the neighborhood itself, because if you go there, it's really nice middle, upper middle class neighborhood. And they really said, you know what, there's too much going on. We want the buildings torn down. So with a lot of pressure through the city and the, the neighborhood, they, they actually were able to get the buildings torn down. And they build a, now there's a big, beautiful, it's called um, Ontario Shores Psychiatric Hospital. And it's, uh, it's state of the art. And that's what took its place. But I had a family member that was a patient at Whitby Psych back in the 50s. Oh, wow. And the stories that uh, were told were horrible. So sometimes you'll see, oh, well, you know, Whitby Psych, it was a wonderful place and we did great things. And I've heard otherwise through them and uh, some other people. Well, that's the case that we've heard with a lot of the asylums that we've looked into is that the way they were built was to facilitate people feeling better about themselves and they would have all these different activities and everything. And it would sound like a really great place and they would be really self-sufficient because they'd have their own gardens there and that kind of thing. But then you hear on the other side, first of all, you've got which you would talk about with lobotomies and everything. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing you can do to a human being is to lobotomize them because the procedure itself just seems like it's out of uh-huh. the medieval era. Oh, yeah. And oh, then it leaves the people. Can you explain to everybody a little bit, since you know a lot about this, when somebody's been lobotomized, what does that do to them? Well, what they're doing is they're severing the, so in your brain, you have gray matter, which is that, you know, the, the massive portion of the brain we see. And then there's white matter, which is our, which are our nerves, like our sort of our highways that bring information to different parts of our body. So what, you know, lobotomy is they're severing those highways, sort of, they're cutting the nerves off from that portion of the brain to the rest of the brain. So it makes it incapable for the person to function or use this functioning of that of the brain. Now, the frontal lobe is pretty much prefrontal lobe, which is just behind our forehead, is the area where a lot of our personality is formed. 
going further back into the brain of the frontal lobe uh, to the cortex, that's where movement takes place. So if you can imagine getting a terrible lobotomy, not that there's a good one, but where one that extensive damage, not only does it affect the person's personality, their memory, their ability to speak, it also changes the way that they can walk and move and be able to, to get around. So that's, that's what happens. So anything in your personality could, could go, your memories. In, in essence, I think you're robbing someone of their soul. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that that's the soul center of the brain, but if you take away someone's personality that's developed over a period of time, if you rob someone of their memory, if they're if you rob someone of their intellect, and, and sometimes people become very aggressive because of it, and some people become very labile, they become very, uh, they just don't care about anything anymore. So it's it's it can be from any extreme where it has a, a mild reaction on you, where you just sort of become without any disrespect, sort of like a zombie, all the way up to complete... Vegetative, kind of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, vegetative, yeah. So, yeah, that, 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 the frontal lobe is some of the most, is the one of the biggest and most important parts of our brain because it's not just personality, it's walking and talking and thinking. Sure, and I mean, I'm one of those people who actually believes that our personality is our soul, so... Oh, I agree, yeah, I do. I'm the same with you. Yeah, so to me, like you said, it's it kills the soul. Yeah, it totally would because you're not really who you were then anymore. And, and the people that got the lobotomy oftentimes were... Well, I mean, here, I have my argument of when, it, when was there ever a good, a good reason for a lobotomy. There's not because you can't fix something by destroying it, Mm-mm. right? You can't cause permanent brain damage to fix something. And so and it was known that you can't fix schizophrenia by severing white matter yet he would go after schizophrenic patients you, you or other doctors would so the so what they were trying to go after the fix it couldn't even be quote unquote fixed if that's what you want to call it so you know you could be an alcoholic you could be a woman that has postpartum depression a child who maybe had adhd or something like that it, it didn't even have to be all you had to do was maybe just piss off the wrong person <laughs> unfortunately yeah well, I mean, we know that's the reason why some of these people were actually put in there. His husband was done with his wife, and so he'd have her locked yeah. up. Oh, that's exactly it. it that's it, it. Just it's. I can't think of a bigger or that's as big as a horror story as I I can imagine happening to somebody. So yeah, those things were taking place at this hospital. Oftentimes, people were given shock treatments as a form of anesthetic because the brain gets shocked, you cease, so you become um, unconscious. And during that unconscious period, that's when they would do the lobotomy. And then when you wake up from that unconscious state from the seizure, <laughs> now, uh, and bones would break during the seizure. You could, mm. you could get broken jaws, broken ribs, broken femurs, when all mm. they had to do was just give them a bit of ether if they were going to do it. It's just uh, one barbaric thing piled onto another thing. And of course, you have all those other treatments like ice baths and hanging people from the ceiling and twirling them around as fast as they could. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah, we, I think one of the worst stories we'd heard is uh, Rhoda Derry. I don't know if you've ever heard her story. Oh, she, I don't. I, it doesn't sound familiar to me. She was kept in a, they called it a crib. And it was, it wasn't an adult sized kind of crib. It was just this, basically a cage. And she oh. was kept in there for so long that her limbs and everything, it was just, she was kind of in this deformed position and couldn't walk in anything because oh. that's where she'd been kept for so many years. And she actually, uh, a doctor did come through and, and pulled her out of there and, you know, helped her, her to improve her life and everything. And it was much better for her after that. But I just, that was one of the worst things I'd ever heard. I'm going to look into that. Rhoda Dairy. Yeah. Some people ask why I like to do these stories 
and I always I say that it's always from a good place. I mean, you can go out, you can tell these stories from a, a shock value point of view. There's, it's a shock value because it actually happened. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's important just if you're talking about this, you're talking about mental health. And talking about mental health brings you forward to nowadays. So I think any kind of discussion leaves things open to, to fixing things now or stopping these things from happening. Now, did you ever get a chance to do an investigation at the psychiatric hospital before they tore it down? Yeah, I did. I myself didn't really get much activity, but I had to go out during the day. And so ghosts are around no matter what, but it just contaminated with light and, mm-hmm. and high, and because it was in a, in a, in a suburban neighborhood. So cars going by, things like that. So it was, it was hard for me to really get a great investigation, but I could feel it. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, knowing that a family member had been there, that I, I kind of needed to go there for that reason, too, because I almost felt like I needed to experience something on their behalf to sort of, does that make any sense? I don't think I'm articulating it quite well, but. No, I think it's, you have a connection to it. And so yeah. kind of, you wanted to go there for that connection. Yeah. And it just, uh, you know, like, like you said, this place did have a farm. It was self-sufficient. I think that you touched on that, it sort of also cuts this whole place off from society when they say, oh, well, we're a self-sufficient place. Well, that just makes it easier for you to, mm-hmm. to stay all encompassed, for you not to have communication with the outside world when you have everything all under one roof. And, and oftentimes, the, the, if people were supposed to be high-functioning enough to go out and work on these farms, they didn't go. They hired people to do that. Most of the time, you know, they had all these great amenities there. They weren't used. It's It just it looked great, you know, but it just... It, if they put it into practice, but they, they often didn't. Did you hear any stories of anybody saying that they had had any kind of haunting experiences there? Yes. Uh, I, there were some people that in the paranormal group that I was in said that they heard like a woman crying. Mm -hmm. They would hear sort of like that kind of screaming, crying kind of thing. A nurse that I worked with, her mother, at one point it was a training hospital for nurses as well. So you would train there to become a nurse. You would work there or go off. And her mother actually was a nurse that trained there and knew of the things that took place. She didn't actually continue to work there. But she would speak of the the friend of mine had gone there down the road and she had spoke of just that unsettling feeling. and, And there's like a female presence, at least in one area. Because there is, I think, about 60 buildings on that property. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what they did is they built them as cottages. The the whole idea was because it's on the lakefront, so it's on Lake Ontario. So they felt, you know, fresh air and have people living in cottages. So they have like their own sort of homes, that kind of thing. Uh, That would bring, I mean, the concept is fantastic. (laughs) It does (laughs) sound good. But the the family member of mine said uh, that she was often locked in in a large room with people of every age um, and, and male and female, from children to adults. And just locked in there for hours, like a hundred of them left to fend for themselves. Wow. You know, there's cottages around the grounds. There's beautiful grounds. That part of Ontario is is, is quite quite pretty, you know, on the water and everything. And uh, so, mm-hmm. and any and then also too, it's like any type of mental unwellness was taking place. So you could have someone that was in a state of psychosis that could be in this room to somebody who was catatonic to someone who was alcoholic or uh, depressed. So yeah, scary stuff. Yeah, you don't want to be sitting next to somebody who might be schizophrenic and hears voices talking to them and you're just in there because you're having a hard time giving up the drink. <laughs> no, exactly. And we do have some reports of hauntings here at the location from the Cold Spot website. A few of my friends and I were there the summer of 2004. We were curious about it. We went into the building called the Children's Ward. 
We had to crawl through a basement window. The second we got in, I got a terrible vibe from the place. I mean, it was really, really creepy. Anyway, I noticed that throughout the building, there was an area where it was cold or there was a breeze. At one point, I swore I heard children laughing. Only me and my friend Sam heard it. Sarah and Tiff didn't hear anything. I really wanted to leave after that, but they insisted we keep looking around. We went into one room and there was whispering and footsteps. We all heard it this time. It was quite terrifying. We all made haste and left after that. On our way out, I kept on hearing footsteps following us, and not just one set, like a lot of them. Anyway, it's 100% haunted by my books and by lots of other people I know who have gone. Another person told them, I was a guard at Whitby Psychiatric Hospital in 1988 to 1989. One night I got a call that a doctor's dog was going crazy when the elevator went by in Building 30. Her office was located on the second floor. I went in and saw that the elevator was on the third floor, called it, and went to the second floor. The doctor explained that her dog normally ignores the elevator. It had a habit of starting up on its own and traveling the floors, but that night was an exception. After I asked to borrow the dog, we went up to the third floor. I was about halfway around the floor when the dog stopped at a door. He started sniffing and I said, what do you hear, Max? The dog looked at me and turning back at the door started pawing it. I got my keys, put the key in the lock, and all I had to do was turn the key and the door was open. I felt a sudden wave of terror go through me and my hand would not obey the signal from my brain to open the door. I pulled the key out and tugging on the dog's leash said, let's go, Max. I had to get out of there really fast. The dog wasn't leaving that door and I had to drag him away with all my strength. He was about a medium-sized dog. After the dog was about 10 feet from the door, he finally came with me. I headed back to the doctor's office, handed the dog over and said, found nothing, gotta go now and headed out of that building as quickly as I could. I started feeling like a coward and returned. The doctor had left for the night, although she appeared to be ready to work through the night and I left. The next day, I retraced my steps and found the drag marks on the floor. I opened the door, looked inside and found only undisturbed dust. I heard later that years previously, a patient had murdered a nurse on the third floor and then committed suicide. He has been known to scream at the guards, telling them to get out of his building. So I don't know, just had a creepy feeling, apparently. Thank goodness didn't actually see that scene. Oh, no kidding. That would have been very, very terrifying. I can tell you of a, of a, a situation that I was in where I have an EVP of a very, where I was in a situation where it was a very dark entity and there's actually growling and banging and things being thrown that you can hear on my recorder while I was doing the investigation. Wow, I know how disturbing that can be because I have picked up a growl one time on an yeah. EVP and it is the freakiest thing because all of a sudden you're hearing something you're not expecting to hear. It was awful. I, I sort of, there was so much going on in the room at the time that I didn't really register it. But when I played it back, I didn't know what to expect. But then when the growl came out, I, I, I think I felt sicker hearing that than when I was in the actual situation. Because then you reflect back and say, wow, I was in a lot more of a scary situation than I realized. And I had done something kind of stupid. I sort of opened myself up a lot more because this, at this particular investigation, it was a schoolhouse that had a lot of uh, Aboriginal children in, in, in Canada. The Aboriginal people have been treated very poorly. And they were often taken away from their families and forced to live in residential schools. And this one particular school housed some of these, these children and it had burnt to the ground, but the foundation stayed. Some of the children had passed in this building and then they built another school on top of it. So this building and this property is incredibly active. When you walk into the property, 
there's almost like a black greasy feeling that that kind of comes out of the the woods and the ground it feels slick and gross mm. and then in the building it's just like right away i think that i may be extra sensitive than other people because i've allowed myself to be i've opened myself up to it i you know i think that we can all sense things if, if we want to i'm not saying we make it up it's just that you either want to know about it or you don't sure but in this situation when i went into the basement of this place i sensed a little little child and there was a rocking chair down there of course you know you got to have a rocking chair in a basement <laughs> just to creep you out even more but the chair was rocking and mm. we had some uh, cameras uh, night vision cameras down there and you could see the image of a little girl kneeling down behind this rocking chair and it was rocking wow and and then i had gone down there before and there was a room that off to the corner that was very dark very black very sulfury horrible smelling when i saw that or felt that there might have been a child spirit down there, and I knew of that darkness, I was like, I don't know, something got into me. I'm like, I got to go down there and, and help her somehow. And I opened myself up. And the room just went black and sulfury and thick and, and awful. It was horrible. And I was saying, back off, go away. And then afterwards, when you listen to the recording, it, uh, it, it, was, it was this growl, banging. You can hear things being thrown. It was just me and one other investigator down there. And He's a pretty tough guy. And when he heard this recording, like he was shaking mm -hmm. because he was witnessing what was going on, but he didn't hear that either. So like he was sort of my witness to say, no, none of that we could hear. So yeah, that was uh, probably the scariest thing I've ever been involved with. And I, it took me a couple of days to shake that off. I felt really sick and I do meditation before and after I have my Reiki master. So I know how to cleanse and prepare. So yeah, I really haven't done anything like that since because I, it gets real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want it to come home with you, that's for sure. It can get serious fast. The little girl was behind the rocking chair, which to me sounds a little weird because why wouldn't she be sitting in the rocking chair? But then when you talk about this growl, it makes you wonder if she wasn't hiding behind the rocking chair. That's what I felt that was happening is that he was sort of, I, it's funny because I say he, and I don't know why I'm saying he. <laughs> Because I have this image in my brain, like I could, I could literally draw for you what I felt that this, this entity looked like. And I could draw for you what I felt that this little girl, at least what my mind's eye sees. And I felt like he was trapping her here, mm -hmm. like almost being like being vindictive and trapping her down there and that she was hiding. She was terrified and she couldn't cross over because of that. All right. Well, we, uh, we will let you go. And uh, we'll talk to you again so, in the so future. Nice talking to you guys. You guys are so nice. So much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao. Well, that was some great locations that Karen had shared with us. I dug in a little bit deeper to see if we could find some other haunted locations, and Whitby has some. This one appears to be one that is from somebody's personal residence in a home that's near the old psychiatric hospital, and it was reported on the Toronto Ghost website. About two years ago, while I was home alone, I was going upstairs to go to bed. When I got to the top of the stairs, I turned to go into our bedroom, and I saw a woman in a red satin dress or nightgown lying on my side of the bed. She had strawberry blonde hair, and I would say she was around five foot three, thinking about the amount of space she took up on the bed. I would say that she was probably in her 30s, though I didn't get a really good look at her features. I can't remember positively, but I think she turned to look at me. I only saw her for a milliseconds, though. I was very shocked, and after catching my breath, I turned back, and she was gone. After some time had gone by and nothing more happened, I figured that it had been my mind playing tricks on me. But last night, my husband had gone upstairs briefly, and when he came down, I knew something was wrong. 
He told me he'd seen a woman lying on my side of the bed and described her as I have. The Centennial Building. This is the former Ontario County Courthouse, which was built in the 1850s. Frederick Cumberland and Wallace Storm were the architects who designed the building. Trials were held here starting in 1854, and the courthouse was in use until 1964. That's a long time. That's over 100 years. After that time, the building was used as a community center that eventually became home to the Whitby Courthouse Theater, county archives, banquet facility, and meeting rooms. In 1979, the Centennial Building was designated as a heritage structure under the Ontario Heritage Act. One tragic event that occurred here happened during a trial in 1873. A man by the name of Jack was sitting in the courthouse watching the trial of his son. The young man was accused of rape. Jack was very agitated and became even more stressed after the jury came back with their verdict. As the judge was preparing to read the verdict, Jack jumped to his feet and ran through a set of doors in the courtroom that led to a balcony. Once the judge read that the verdict was guilty, Jack threw himself over the balcony and died. It is his spirit that is believed to haunt this location. Custodians and other workers in the Centennial Building say that lights go on and off by themselves and they've seen a shadow person in the hallways. Many times, custodians have locked up a room only to pass it later and see the lights back on in that room. This happens often in the Regal Room. One custodian witnessed an apparition in the upper balcony of the theater, which then stepped down 15 feet onto the floor below. So I'm not exactly sure if it like floated down from the balcony or if there's a set of stairs that it watched the figure go down. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, because you don't exactly step down 15 feet. No. (laughs) I guess if you're a ghost, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Uh, True. The building has been investigated several times by various groups with each reporting that they have captured EVPs and that members of their teams have experienced strange feelings up on the balcony that have left them dizzy. The Canadian Paranormal Seekers did an investigation here in 2005 and claimed to capture what appeared to be a ghost on video. They also said that their psychic tried communicating with Jack and that he was angry and wanted to know why they were there. In a picture taken of her while channeling, there is an orb and they claim there are hands overlapping her hands, but we didn't really see that one in the picture. And you all can look on the show notes. There's a picture of her sitting on the steps. Yeah, the orb's a little bit different than most orbs. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure where they were seeing hands over hers because I'm, I'm not seeing that. And of course, as we know, orbs can be very dubious. If I saw a face in it, it would be a little bit more convincing. Then we have the Trevolger Castle School. It's home to one of the finest private girls' schools in Ontario. It was originally built in 1859 for the sheriff of the county, Nelson Gilbert Reynolds. Apparently, they must have paid him rather well. The term castle in the name refers to the building structure, which was inspired by an Elizabethan castle. It was built from limestone and took three years to complete at a cost of $70,000. At the time, this was the largest private home in North America. There's reportedly a legendary hidden chamber and a secret tunnel. Reynolds lived at the castle until 1874. Then financial difficulties caused him to have to sell the property. Obviously, trying to maintain such a big property can be a little expensive. So he built this for $70,000. He sold it in 1874 for $35,000. So for half of what it cost him to build it. Wow. Must have been desperate to dump it. Well, the Methodist Church stepped up and they bought the property and opened it as the Ontario Ladies College, which changed its name in 1979 to the Trafalgar Castle School. It is only fitting that a school that looks like a castle would have ghosts. 
Students throughout the years have claimed to hear phantom footsteps, and they've seen doors open and close by themselves. One legend from the school involves an elderly woman's visit to the school. It was night, and she told the caretaker that she wanted to see her granddaughter's room, which was room 232. The caretaker leads the woman towards the room, and when he turned to tell her that they had arrived, the woman had disappeared. The Toronto Ghost website reports that in 2008, someone wrote them and said, Because I work in law enforcement, I'd prefer to remain anonymous. I just finished three nights of working at Trafalgar Castle School, and I feel pleased to offer you a new story. This happened my first night there. At about 9.30 p.m., I was starting to write a report in the green gym office area when I saw a brunette, about 15 years old, in white gym clothes, t-shirt and shorts, walk down a staircase, turn right, and vanish from sight. She was in the building where the fitness room is, located behind the chapel. Since I hadn't toured the grounds yet, I didn't think anything of it. The students are free to go in and out until 10.30 p.m. Then I went for a walk, and I quickly realized that there was no door where the girl turned and left my sight. 24 hours later, a friend was talking to my husband quite casually about TCS being haunted. Apparently, this is old news to those who live nearby. But it's new news to her. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Wow. Uh, I guess, you know, it's one of those things where we have these experiences and... At the time, you don't really know that that's what that was. And then when you think about it later, you're like, what was that? It would seem, according to these stories and the stories that Karen told us, that some unexplained activity is going on in Whidbey. Every town seems to have its share of ghost tales. Are these locations in Whidbey, Ontario haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, that was so fun to have Karen join us. And we talked for probably over an hour and a half, which obviously we cut quite a bit of that out of the interview. But uh, we had a lot of fun talking about some of the experiences that we've had and sharing some EVPs that we've captured and just talking about things in general. Make sure you check out her podcast. It's STAT, S-T-A-T in all caps. You can find that at iTunes or anywhere where you can find podcasts. You can find her on Twitter and Facebook under that as well. But I've really been enjoying her podcast. Another podcast you might want to check out is History or Something Like It. I just have been binging this one lately and it's had a lot of fun things. The most recent one was about myths of Halloween. I know we're past Halloween, but I'm always in the Halloween mood. I was about to say, do we really get past Halloween? (laughs) I don't think so. Not around here. That's why we always tell everybody, don't get sad because... Halloween is 24-7, 365 around here. So nothing to be sad about. It's just the rest of the world isn't partaking in it with us. And I think he did something on necromancy. And so he's got some really cool stuff over there. So I encourage you to check that out. Also, check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get an email from Nicole. She says, hello, ladies. I very recently discovered the podcast and I love it. I really enjoy hearing the listener stories you frequently feature as I have plenty of my own, but I'm timid to share with many people because they sometimes think I'm just crazy, but we won't think that around here. The truth is I've been haunted my whole life. We have family members who tend to follow us from home to home and they are always more active after their recent passing or in times of distress. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Denise, can you imagine you have family? You know, we have company come and and we love having company come to our house and hang out with us. Like everybody else, we're always happy to have them go home. Can you imagine if they come and then they just don't go home because they're in spirit form? Uh, Nope, that would be kind of interesting. For me, it all began when I was a small child. My bedroom in our first home was at the top of the stairs, and every night after my parents put me to bed, I would hear my grandmother slowly shuffle up the carpeted stairs in her slippers. The only problem was, 
my grandmother passed away in the house nonviolently six months before I was born. <laughs> this is, I love this story. I can hear grandma coming down the hall. Only problem is she's dead. <laughs> she's not with me anymore. <laughs> Obviously, I never knew her, but somehow I always knew that it was her coming up the stairs. I sometimes felt like she would stand in my doorway to look in on me, but was always too afraid to roll over and look. That's very sweet. I'd love to think of, you know, that her grandmother's just coming to see her granddaughter. Yeah, and take care of her. Keep an eye out. The next notable experience I have comes from my mother and her two sisters. When my grandfather passed away, we went up to his secluded home in the woods to clean and pack up his belongings and make arrangements. The three sisters slept together in one large bed due to limited space in the house, and after the first night there, each one independently shared the same story. At some point during the night, they woke up hearing footsteps and voices talking in the living room. Everyone else in the house was asleep. Each one of the sisters woke up at a different time of the night, but all three reported the same exact experience, and all three shared that the voices sounded like specific relatives, all of whom were already dead. It's not unusual when a member of our family dies for somebody or another to report seeing their dead relatives hanging around our house or even riding in our cars with us, coming back to guide the recently deceased to the next life, and I guess popping in to check on those of us who are still alive and well. Recently, all of our experiences have happened in my mother's home. The home was built in the 50s and stayed in the same family until we bought it in 2009. From the very beginning, we sensed non-family presences in the house. Specifically, my mother, my brother, and myself all felt that there was an older man who occupied the small living room area in the basement. My bedroom is down there, and I can't tell you how many times I felt like a person was standing in my doorway or beside my bed just watching me in the basement. Now, that's not so sweet as the grandmother thing. That would freak me out. No, see, I could never do a bedroom down in the basement. I know I've said this before on the show that even when I would go back and stay at my folks' house and I'd be down in the basement, it would always freak me out to be down there. He is never malicious or predatory, but he can be very clear in his presence. So we reached an agreement. I told him he can hang out all he wants, but I don't want to see him, hear him, or smell him, and would prefer if he didn't touch me. So far, he's been kind enough to comply with these requests. We assume that this man belonged to the family who owned the home from the time it was constructed and simply decided to stay on with us after we moved in. He doesn't like when we make too many changes. We've had a few construction projects. We always have to explain to him what's going on first, because otherwise things are lost, moved, or broken lights flicker or go out, and the experience generally gets more spooky. The only experience I've had with him that genuinely bewildered me occurred when he started our dishwasher. I took our dog out, leaving the dishwasher hanging open. He was not in the middle of a cycle and was open pretty far. When I came back inside, I took the dog off the leash, walked through the kitchen, and sat on the living room sofa before I realized that not only was the dishwasher now closed, it was running! Nobody else was home. We had no other dogs who could have bumped it, and none of the cats in the house had the wherewithal to close the door and push the start button. I quietly went into the kitchen and checked to see if the ghost had been nice enough to finish loading the machine and add soap. No luck. But otherwise, that was a pretty unsettling experience. Anyway, those are some of my spooky stories, but certainly not all. Thanks so much for the podcast. I'm hoping to go back to the beginning soon and listen to every episode. We have a couple of reviews to share from iTunes. The first one is from Sarvia Rose. Love it. Five stars. This is my favorite history podcast. Yes, the first few episodes have audio issues, but the audios improved greatly. I've joined the Spooktacular crew and become an EP and have no regrets. Well, thank you so much for that. I've also found other podcasts through guests they have on or recommended. Keep up the fantastic work, Denise and Diane. Tutu Bailey, one of the best five stars. This review is overdue as I've been binging for months on this wonderful podcast. I love both history and paranormal topics, and this podcast is a well-balanced mix of both. The show is well-researched and includes a healthy dose of skepticism at times. 
The hosts are adorable and make it feel like you're meeting up with friends. I hope to meet up with them both one day for a tour. Well, we would love to have you. In double AUB, excellent podcast, five stars. My favorite by far. Love the content. Love the hostesses. Excellent podcast. Also, I recommend joining the Spooktacular crew on Facebook. Great people there, too. Oh, yes, indeed. We have great fabulous spookies in there yes we have a great crew and and they're just fun whether we're conversing on facebook or we've actually done meetups with several of them and looking forward to doing some travel with them in the future we want to thank you all for tuning into this episode i've been your host diane and this has been denise you take care now bye-bye this episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Rich Tyrell for increasing your donation. And Janine Jacoby, thank you for your one-time donation. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Thank you.